Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas and the birds, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You know, I remember uh, years ago, Dan was a young boy, and, and he wanted a hamster. And so for 
I think it was for his birthday or something, we got, went and got him a hamster. Well, you don't just go buy a, a hamster. You also got to buy all the stuff that comes with the hamster. You got to buy the, the cage and you got to buy the wheel that it's going to run on for exercise. And you got to buy the food dish and you got to buy the water bottle that hangs on the side and you got to buy the little house for it to live in and the wood chips that go on the bottom. And you got to buy all that stuff to have the hamster. In the end of that, when you look at all that stuff that you got to buy and the hamster, you say, what is the purpose? What is the underlying purpose for all that stuff? Is it the hamster? No, it's not. You know what the purpose is? The purpose is Daniel. That's, that's the reason for it. And I'm reminded of that when we come to Genesis chapter 1 right here because I see the same kind of thing happening. I see God creating this whole world. And it seems that, as you read through it, it seems that all of it has kind of a climax at it, and that is mankind. He creates the, the world that we're going to live in, and he divides the seas, and he makes the dry land, and he puts the stars in the heavens, and he puts the plants and the trees on the earth, and he puts the animals, and he puts the birds and the fish, and, and not all in that order, obviously, and he puts all these things, and then finally the last thing is man, and he puts mankind there. Mankind, the only creature that's made in his own image, the only creature that he gives dominion over all the rest of it too. And so the crowning feature of the whole creation is mankind, just like the crowning feature of that whole deal for Daniel was the hamster. But you know what? The purpose in all of it was Daniel. Same with Genesis. Really, the purpose in all of it is not man. It's God. Thirty-two times through the book of Genesis, chapter 1, God is called Elohim. And so God is the focus. It's all God's work. It's all what God's doing. It's God accomplishing His will. But as it, what is His will is to create mankind in His own image and give Him uh, dominion over the rest of the creation that He puts there for His benefit. And so it's all to the glory of God. In the person of God, we see this, this being that is e in eternal. In the beginning, God was already there and He gets busy creating the heavens and the earth. So we see this one uncaused cause. We see this one eternal being, this one self-existent one, gets busy with creating the world. Some people look at what we believe and say, well, that's, that's crazy. That just, that's, it's all based on faith. It's not based on fact or evidence. And I would argue vehemently with that. But you know what? Actually, no matter what your worldview is in this, it has an element of faith. And I want to compare these two things. Well... In biblical creation, this is what I believe. I believe in one eternal God over scientific principle. I don't deny scientific principle. In fact, I recognize scientific principle, and I see it as important. In fact, if you look at many of the discoveries down throughout history, the scientific inventions and discoveries, they were made by Christian individuals that felt like the reason that they studied science because they unlocked the mysteries of the glory of God. And that physical laws could be dependent upon, scientific laws could be dependent upon because we have a God that is faithful that created them. And so we see one self-existent one, one eternal being, this God, that is not outside of scientific principles. He's over scientific principles. In, the, in fact, he's the one that created those principles. And he created these worlds for a purpose, and that's to declare the glory of God, as it tells us in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In fact, so much so, the Bible in the book of Romans in chapter 1 is showing the guilt of all mankind. It says that mankind should recognize God for who he is, and we should see that clearly through creation. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, he's saying as we look at the creation that's around us, we can see the power and might of God. We can see the creativity of God. We can see the evidence of the existence of God because of what he created. Just as when we look at a house, we know there's a carpenter. When we see a watch, we know there's a watchmaker. When we see a car, we know there's an automobile manufacturing plant. Every time we see purpose and complexity, there's always an intelligent designer. Well, you'll never find more purpose or complexity than in looking in the nature that is all around you. And that speaks of a designer. Well, as we mentioned, if we believe in creation, then we believe in this one being that is over scientific principle. What if I believe in evolution? And I would tell you that evolution takes more steps of faith than creation does. In creation, there's one step of faith. I believe in God. He is the logical answer for everything else. In evolution... I've got to make several leaps of faith, and this is what I would point out. In evolution, I believe in several events that violate scientific principles. They would say, I believe in science. I'm holding to science. You're not holding to science. When you look at origins, science doesn't tell us anything about origins, about the beginning. The reason is, in order for it to be science, it has to be able to be reproduced. It has to be able to be observed in order to, for it to be science. This really falls more into the nature of philosophy than it does science. Its evolution is not science. It is the philosophy through which people interpret science at times. The reason we have the theory of evolution is because people are driven to know why we're here, and we're driven to know what led to us being here. And if you're going to assume that there's no God, you have to come up with natural processes that answer the question of how did we get here. And that's what evolution does. It starts off with an assumption. The assumption, there is no God. There is nothing supernatural. Everything happens on a natural scale, which means every effect has a cause that leads to it. And everything functions within these scientific principles. But the problem is, if you're going to make that your assumption, that there is no God, you have to make other assumptions in its place. The first one is that something comes from nothing. Scientifically, that's impossible. So where do we come from? And they say, well, there was this big bang. Of what? What exploded? What blew up? What? And the answer is we, we don't know. But the, the point that I'm making is that behind that we don't know. Since you're assuming that evolution is true, you're assuming that something can come from nothing, which is a violation of a scientific principle. They do it again just a little bit farther down the line because even after you have something, you don't have anything that's living. How do you get something that's living from something not living? Their answer is, well, just given enough time that it could happen. Not really. And then also, what about something moral from something amoral? In other words, the difference between animals and people. People that are, are, are self-aware, that reason like this and wonder what our beginning is. And so there's a huge difference between animals which are amoral and people that are moral. And even before that, what about you have different kinds of life? You have plant life, and then you have animal life, and then you have people. And there's a lot of different steps here. That There has to be a scientific reason for these things to happen if you're going to believe in evolution. As a creationist, I believe that we have one supernatural being that is over the scientific principles. In fact, he created the scientific principles. That's what I want to consider this morning as we look at this passage. I want to deal with creation. And I want to look at three reasons why I take Genesis 1 literally. 
that God literally formed the creation of this world in six days, just as he said he did. And I'm going to give you three reasons why that's the case. The first one is a grammatical reason. As we look within the text, there's five different things that I'd like to point out through here that are repeated very much. The first one is the phrase, God created. In the very beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all through the passage, over and over, it keeps making statements like this. God created, God made, God separated, God gathered. Thirty-two times, as we mentioned, it uses the word God in here, that God was doing something. The whole point of Genesis chapter 1 is that God made this place. That God created this. God is a, Elohim is a plural term. I think it's alluding to the, the Trinity. That we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in the creation of the world. Just like when he says, let us make man in our image. The Bible backs that up in other places. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so they give credit to the God the Father for the creation of the world. In John chapter 1 and verse 3, the first three verses says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And when you get to Genesis chapter 1, what do you see? God making things through what? Through His spoken Word. And then, as we already see in the book of Genesis chapter 1 here, it talks about the Spirit, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in this creation. But the main point is that it is God doing the creating, the making, the separating, the gathering. It is God forming this earth, not just natural processes. The second phrase that I see used in here repeatedly is actually two of them. It has, first it will say, and God said, like in God said, let there be light. And then a little bit after that it will say, and it was so. It says in verse 3, and God said, and then you get down to the end of verse 7, it says, and it was so. Then verse 9, and God said, and later in the same verse, and it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation in verse 11. And it was so at the end of that same verse. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse. Verse 15, and it was so. And so repeatedly through the passage, it keeps saying, "God, God said, God spoke this into existence. He just said it, and then it was so. And so why do I think Genesis 1 is literal, that it happened in six literal days? It just doesn't take that long to say these things. Recently, I was talking to the kids about creation, and I said, God made the world in six days. And you know what? He just spoke it into existence. He said, let there be light, and then there was light. Let there be dry land, and dry land. You know what their response was? Well, what do you do with the rest of the day? So wow, that's so that's some thinking there. That's you're right. That's what he did. He said this, and it was so, and it was so. Well, you know what? In Psalm 148, verses five and six said, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. Hebrews chapter eleven, verse three says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Second Peter three five says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. God just spoke and it was so. Also, the word day. So we look at the word day, he says he made this on the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. He keeps using that word day. There are Hebrew words for bigger periods of time. 
Just like we have English words for, we have days and weeks and months and years. They have Hebrew words like that too. But he uses the word day here. And if we look through the Bible, a day is used 2,300 times in the Old Testament. And it's never used to refer to anything other than what, it, what is a day. It's the word yom in Hebrew, by the way. Sometimes people say, well, it says that God, that God made the world in six days. But what is a day to God? And you know what? That's really the wrong question. Because God is talking to Moses. So you don't ask, what is a day to God? What you ask is, what is a day to Moses? How would Moses understand a day? When God tells Moses to tell the people, I made this on the first day, this on the second day, they would think about it just like we do. It's a day. It's a day. It's a day. Moses had the same kind of day as we have a day. But there is a little bit of confusion kicks in because people follow poor methods of Bible study. And they think, now wait a minute though, isn't there a place in the New Testament that says that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years? Well, that passage is found in Second Peter chapter 3. And he says, but do not overlook this one fact, love, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. So it does say that, but you can't stop reading there. And a thousand years as one day. Which means if we're going to be consistent, maybe God made it in like a millisecond. That is quicker than you can say it. You know what the point is? Second Peter chapter 3 has nothing to do with the days of creation. If you go back into the context of Second Peter, he's saying there's going to be mockers. People are going to come and say, look, Christ hasn't returned for 2,000 years. He's obviously not coming. And then he says, don't forget this one thing. The day of the Lord is as a thousand years. A thousand years is the day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but as patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, this doesn't have anything to do with creation. It has to do with the patience of God. What this passage is saying is, I don't care about time. I don't care if it takes a day or a thousand years. What I care about is people coming to repentance. That's the point of Second Peter chapter 3. It's not dealing with creation at all. God's not giving you a formula that this is what a day is to God. It's obvious because he states the opposite right after the first. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Now, what do you do with that? You can't do anything with it. That's the point. It doesn't matter. Then also, he says, and then was evening and there was morning on each of these days. Now, I know you can get into, well, what is an evening and what is a morning before the, before the sun starts to rotate, before we have the sun and the moon and all those things by which we measure our day. It doesn't matter. Remember, this is revealed later, and it's revealed to Moses, and God is just showing him it's a normal day. An evening and a morning, it's a normal day. It's one of your days. And then lastly, the reason I take it literally also is the Bible definitely contradicts evolution in the fact that it says that everything was created according to its kind. The trees are going to reproduce according to their kinds, and the plants are going to have the seeds that reproduce them according to their kinds, and the animals are going to reproduce according to their kinds, and the birds are going to reproduce according to their kinds, and the fish are going to reproduce according to their kinds. Everything is going to reproduce according to their kind. Ten different times he repeats this. You know what evolution says is one kind becomes another kind, which becomes another kind, which becomes another kind. God says absolutely not. He created kinds, and we see the reproduction of those kinds as we go on throughout history. Well, there is a grammatical reason for why I take this literally. There's also a theological reason for why I take this literally. The first reason is death before sin. You see, evolution would tell you that long before you get to having anything that resembles mankind on the earth, that you're going to have millions of years of death and suffering. There's going to be life, and life's going to come into being. It's going to be in some form. It should reproduce and die and reproduce and die and reproduce and die down through the ages. So there are ages and ages of suffering before we ever get to Adam and Eve and they commit the sin which the Bible tells us that death is the result of sin. 
It's because they rebelled against God that death came into this world. Remember what God said repeatedly also through the passage? It was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And in the end, behold, it is very good. Well, if it was all that great, it must not have included death and suffering yet. And then he warns Adam and Eve, don't eat that fruit because the day you eat of that fruit, death. And the New Testament reiterates it. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the reason that the redemption that we get through the death of Christ makes sense is because sin is what brings death. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin and overcomes death. It all makes sense. But if death exists before the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, then redemption doesn't really make sense anymore. If death was the standard norm before sin came into the world, then how can Jesus fix it? And that brings us to the second point, the first Adam versus the second Adam. And Romans speaks of it that way. The Bible points out that the first Adam that came represented mankind. In fact, his name, Adam, means mankind. This is Adam, that first man, was representative, and we'll talk about that more later when we get a little farther into Genesis, but he represented mankind when he ate the fruit. It plunged all of humanity into sin. That's exactly why the second Adam, Jesus Christ, can go to the cross and raise all of humanity out of sin. If you have death that has no connection to sin, then we lose that connection between the first Adam and the second Adam. And so there's theological reasons here that are very important, that are very important. God couldn't just have used evolution to create the world because it destroys the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, there's a scientific reason why I take this literally as well. There's a lot of them. I'm just going to list a few. The first one is no evidence in the fossil record. As we look through our record, you know, evolution teaches that we came from this kind of a being to this kind of a being to this kind of a being. And they draw pictures for you when you're in school in the textbooks and stuff that look pretty good. But the problem is you don't find any of those pictures in the fossil record. You know what we find in the fossil record? We find kinds of, of creatures. And we don't find any intermediary kinds of creatures. In other words, I remember when I was a kid, they always talked about the missing link. Someday they're going to find the missing link. What they meant was the link between man and ape. But what I realized later is they don't have any of the other links either. We've got man and we've got ape. We've got reptiles, we've got amphibians, we've got all these different kinds of of animals. We don't have anything in between them. A chain is a a whole bunch of successive links all linked together. We've got this link, not this link, this link, not this link, this link, not this link, all the way through the whole chain. We don't have any links that are connected together by anything. None. I remember one time going into the science teacher here, Derek Bilbin, at the school, and talking to him about this situation, and and I said, you know what, There there are no links hooking the chain together. And, and you would think that we would have found some of those links in the fossil record. And Derek said it to me this way. He said, Greg, you don't understand. If evolution was true and we had millions of years of this life and death, we wouldn't have a link here and there. We would have millions of fossils that are intermediary creatures between these different kinds. Not just a fossil for this one and a fossil for that one, a fossil for this one. Millions of fossils we should have. And we just don't have them. The fossil record is completely silent on it. It does not show any evolution. Every time you see it in a textbook, it's artistry. It's artwork. It's not in the fossil record. Not only that, but we also see there's no mechanism for adding DNA. We haven't found anything in nature that, in, that brings new DNA into any creature. Now, this is important, and I want to tell you why. Because you've heard the same argument that I have. 
They'll point to adaptation. Like back before the Industrial Age or at the Industrial Age, they studied moths in, in England. You had all these white moths flying around, and then the Industrial Age came along, and you got smog, and the moths kind of turned from white to gray. And there's, there's no huge mystery behind it. The genetic makeup for white and gray moths was in the moths' genetic makeup. And so what happens is they're white and they blend in well with their surroundings. But you add the industrial age and you get the soot and the smoke and all the things start to tea. And I forget what it was that was white in their environment, but that starts to turn gray. The white ones stand out and the birds eat them. But the gray ones are built a little better for survival there. So they survive because they blend in a little bit better. So what happens is over time, you end up with more moths that are gray instead of white. But you know what? You put the air scrubbers on and you clean things up. And pretty soon you find that you have back to white moths. A few gray ones here and there, but mostly white. Why? Because now the gray ones are getting eat up because they don't blend in all that well. Every hunter going out in camouflage knows that. Here's the leap. They'll say, see, these things change. They adapt. On a small scale, you see it adapting. You're watching evolution in action. You're not. You're watching the opposite of evolution in action. And this is why. When you take a group like that, you have a group, and in their genetic makeup is light and dark. In order to fade toward the dark, you've got to start weeding out the gene pool. That's what happens with adaptation. Because something survives better, the genetic information gets more limited, limited information. But here's the deal. In order to go from one creature to another creature, you have to manufacture DNA. You need more genetic information. You see, it's the opposite. Adaptation is limiting genetic information. Evolution would be multiplying genetic information. And we do not have anything in nature that adds new genetic information. There is no mechanism to accomplish that. And then lastly, just put it simply, nothing works until everything works. The world that we live in is like an interdependent system. And everything needs everything else. Evolution doesn't make any sense to me because if you've got 90% of an eyeball, what would make the last part of it form? Somehow it knows it's going to be able to see if it has that one last part? I don't think so. You know, the eyeball gave Darwin fits. He couldn't sleep at night over the eyeball because of that very idea. Not only that, but if you don't have the 10% of the eye, that the final, the last part that makes it, makes it see, then why did the other 90%, why is that there? Did that just kind of start to form knowing that somehow that other 10% is going to be there and all of a sudden it's going to be able to see? None of this makes any sense. You see, we're looking at it from the end where we see everything already there, already functioning, already working, and you know what? It takes that. I remember when I went down to Arizona to visit my parents years ago and we stopped at the Biosphere 2. The Biosphere 1 is the world we live in. And they said, we're going to make a replica of the world that we live in. They made this big greenhouse thing. They made a, a, an area that was like the ocean and an area that was like the, uh, like the desert and an area that was like the, the rainforest and all these different areas. And they put people in there for two years to live inside of this thing, these scientists. And they were hoping that they could survive part of the time. Well, survive all the time, but work at surviving part of the time and study part of the time. And you know what they found out? Even though they had the, the model of the world before them that they studied diligently in trying to make this thing a smaller model of the same thing, they failed. We asked him at one point about the animals and stuff like that, and he said, well, so we put in the rainforest, then you got falling leaves and stuff, and he says, if you're going to have the rainforest, you've got to have the composters, you've got to have the worms and the bugs that are going to eat up the decaying leaves. Otherwise, it doesn't work. 
And then you got the worms and the bugs and stuff. You got to have what's going to eat those, uh, otherwise it doesn't work. And then you got to have whatever's going to eat those too. He says we decided to stop at like the size of a chimpanzee because we didn't want anything in there that's going to eat the people. So we're going to stop there. But but the point is, he said he was telling us right in this thing. But if you have that, you got to have this, and if you have this, you got to have this, and you've got this, you got to have that. In other words, it doesn't work until it's all there. And that's exactly the point. I look at the days of creation and say. It couldn't have taken a long time because you can't make these things take a long time because they're, they're, we're talking about life that's involved here. And the life dies if it doesn't have what it needs to survive. I remember in a book and some of the things I shared with the, kid, the kids before, we talk about the woodpecker. Funny bird, completely different than any other bird in the world. If that woodpecker doesn't have the funky feet that hang backwards for staying on the side of the tree, the shock absorber in the head and the long tongue, if he doesn't have all of it at once, it starves to death. You don't get any more woodpeckers. Things cannot evolve slowly. Everything, the whole system has to be there or it doesn't work. And uh, it just seems plain and simple. But you know what? That's exactly what Genesis 1 is. It's plain and simple. Do you know what happened? In the beginning, God took six days and he made the earth that we live on and then he made us and put us in it to run it. That's what happened.